to the Holding History Podcast, a series of bookish conversations about the fascinating and sometimes puzzling ways we record, share, and preserve cultural knowledge. In each episode, we speak with a guest and tell new stories about old media. While every conversation is different, we return to one particular question. What makes a collection special? My co-host is Joshua Calhoun, professor in the Department of English and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. His first personal archive was a carefully curated collection of binders filled with basketball cards. Also, Josh is two degrees from a Kardashian as he once played high school basketball against future Los Angeles Laker, Lamar Odom. Listener, he lost. (laughs) (laughs) My co-host is Sarah Marty, co-director of the Bolt Center for Arts Administration at the University of Wisconsin School of Business. Sarah was also a Division I college athlete and is a long-standing member of the University of Wisconsin marching band staff. To my delight, she sometimes texts with Bucky Badger. It's been a few months since we recorded this. I've enjoyed revisiting this interesting and impactful conversation with Damian Thomas. So Dr. Thomas is the museum curator of sports for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Previously, he was an assistant professor of history at the University of Maryland, College Park, and at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I really loved hearing about how he translates that teaching experience to public audiences through his work at the museum. Also, Damien is the author of Globetrotting, African-American Athletes, and Cold War Politics. It's one of the reasons we reach out to talk with him. As a researcher, thinker, curator, and teacher, he draws us into a more complex conversation, not only about the history of sports, but also about sports as a history of our culture. We were extremely fortunate to get an entire hour of his time. Yeah, we we recorded the interview in July of 2021. So the Milwaukee Bucks were in the NBA Finals and would eventually win. We were gearing up for the (laughs) Tokyo Olympics, and NCAA athletes were fighting for the right to make money off their names, images, and likenesses. A lot was happening in the world of sports. But we are also still in the wake of George Floyd's death and the nationwide Black Lives Matter protests that arose from that, and right at the start also of another surge in COVID cases. In retrospect, it was the right time to be talking with a scholar of sports and history and culture. He had such brilliant insight into how these different worlds and events related to one another. You know, We may sometimes think of sports as a distraction or just entertainment, but they also register what's going on in the broader world. That's why it's so important to study this history and preserve it, especially as it relates to Black Americans. Speaking of that, you mentioned it in the interview, but you got to spend some time at the Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. I have not been able to go there yet. So I wondered if our conversation with Damien changed your memories of that experience or or the way that you think about that space. It was such a powerful experience. For those who are unfamiliar with the museum, you start your journey in subterranean depths Talking with Damien really made me revisit the intentionality of the space and think back to the design of those exhibits, Mm -hmm. the objects that were shared, and the stories that were told. Everyone who is able, if you're in D.C., should take a day at least to really experience this museum. Yeah, I can't wait to visit myself. So, Josh, um, I shuddered to ask, but what was your favorite part of the interview? (laughs) (laughs) It's impossible. I think you know this. For me to pick a favorite moment or quote from this conversation... Look, I mean, Damien covered so much, and he has this special ability, an impressive ability to connect big ideas and and detailed data to these really poignant objects, like basketballs with laces. 
there were a couple moments in the interview where the audio wobbled a little bit. We're, we're still, you know, all dealing with the various problems. Everyone's on a Wi-Fi in the same space. But I, I found myself in those moments uh, uh, sort of squinting my ears, if that's possible, to catch every single word. Uh, to answer your question, though, I, I'm, I think uh, I can limit it to three things. I'm, let me highlight three three things that our interview has me thinking about differently. That's the fun of these interviews. Like, what, what do I think about differently now? One, I'd say it's the development of sports stadiums from post-World War civic centers to these commercial venues where business people hold uh, parties in their luxury boxes. Um, secondly, it's the ways that education and sports are uniquely linked in American culture. I had not really thought about that before, and now I totally see it. Uh, and thirdly, it's the ways that good archivists can tell stories that capture people's emotions and give them, I think as Damien phrased it, an experience that sits with them long after they've left the archive. And amazingly, there's even more in this conversation. We hope everyone enjoys it as much as we did. As always, be sure to stay tuned after the interview for the Bookish Word of the Week. Can you remember your earliest sport-related memory? Or maybe is there one that had a, an especially big impression early in your life? I don't know if it's my earliest memory, but in many ways, it's one of my fondest memories. And it is a USC football game with my grandfather. But we didn't talk a lot. But sports was always this thing that gave us something to, to engage. And so it was a generational mm -hmm. kind of bridge. It was a, 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 a point we could always come back to in our conversation. So jumping forward from those early experiences, to the work you do now as a sports curator. A lot of people, when they think about archives, they think about books. There's a lot of things in archives, especially sports archives that are not books, right? I think you're right in terms of the traditional definition. People tend to think of it as, as being book related. But what we try to do in the museum world is to collect artifacts, mm -hmm. uh, to collect material culture, that help share stories. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the written word has been incredibly important, but the ability to take something like a football or a basketball, for example, one of my favorite objects in the museum collection is a dinkered basketball from the early 1940s. And it's a basketball that has laces on it, just like a football. Oh my gosh. And, and many people come in and they're really surprised to see it because they've never seen a basketball with laces. But we didn't develop the technology to seal a basketball without laces until about the 1940s. It, it sort of takes people in a, in a place that they, they didn't know. And you hope that an item like that helps open them up to learning more and thinking about the past and thinking about what they don't know. And so what we try to do is to collect Things with whether we're talking about tickets to key games, balls and equipment, and you can kind of see how equipment's changed over time and in jerseys from key iconic moments to help people think about why sports matter. Uh, what, what do most people not know or misunderstand uh, about sports and culture or about collecting? Um, the art artifacts from sports and culture. People don't realize how unique it is 
sports are so tied to our educational institutions in the United States. That's not the case around the world. And sports are things that allow us yeah. to think about key moments. Still to this day, sports are a major way for me to understand the world. Because if we think about mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter, the moment mm -hmm. so many Americans began mm -hmm. to, to, to really be forced to grapple with the implications of this protest was when the controversy over Colin Kaepernick taking a knee became a national conversation. And so sports, sports are mm -hmm. always a way through which we are sort of learning about larger cultural issues. Sports audiences um, are a really interesting mix of people. <laughs> There's this cross section that, that are in an audience for uh, an NBA basketball game or for an NFL football game that those folks might not come together in any other particular circumstance or um, event or situation. Because I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and if we think about the history of stadium development in our country, it, it ties so closely. The first wave of major stadium development comes after World War I. Mm. And you get all of these memorial stadiums to soldiers and people who had, who had sacrificed for the country. The second wave was in the 1970s, mm -hmm. where, where um, cities were saying, okay, we're not building all of these stadiums, and we're going to have these city-owned municipal stadium, and the football and baseball stadiums are going to be combined. Mm -hmm. But that third wave, which was, which was in the early 1990s and 2000s, was about putting in luxury boxes, where corporations would buy them, and they would woo their clients. In part, it, it's amazing how being at a game mm -hmm. and cheering for the same team can create bonds that are hard to create otherwise. And so it's interesting the way that sports became this business kind. I really appreciate uh, tracing that history of development. I, in my work in the business school, one of the things that we talk about is creating place and taking space. And sometimes that taking of space is in the is in the name of we're creating a community place, and we think about what happens to communities um, when that stadium is proposed, and and how are communities impacted by those projects, and what happens to the nature of the folks that live in the places, good good and bad, um, and and to their their sort of connection to those those places and spaces. It's just it's just a, an honor that people have entrusted us with these artifacts and these objects. And in certain ways, the hardest part of building an archive of this nature is I often go visit with people and I ask them to donate these objects. Mm. And and the hardest part is is that I am really honest with them about what we can and cannot do. We can put it up here. We can't do this. I can't can't create this special exhibition. And so part of it is 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 sort of getting people to understand the limitations of what we can. Mm -hmm. But one of the great things about the Smithsonian is that as long as there is an, an America, the Smithsonian Museum will exist. And so what I try to make sure that I'm doing in terms of building the, the archives is that we collect broadly and, and that we collect things that matter. 
And so that that really is part part of my um, biggest biggest challenge. Advice to to younger up and coming athletes: uh, Are there things that they could throw away thinking they're worthless that you as a collector would say, please, 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 like put it in a box, hold on to it because that's part of that's part of a story we need to tell someday. Um, young athletes who might be listening, what should they be holding on to? They should hold on to as much as they can. <laughs> One of the things that, that always happens is, is when I go visit people, I, I ask them to just pull out everything and let me look at it. And what ultimately happens is that people are surprised by the things that I pick because sometimes it's not that, that key home run or, or something. For example, one of the items we have related to Althea Gibson is her membership card to the American Tennis Association, which was a, an organization that was started in in uh, the 19-teens, 1920s, when African-Americans were barred from mm -hmm. the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association that was known at that time. And so that's a, a, a history that we want to collect. It's very difficult to find those objects. And so I, I, I think athletes should, should try to preserve as much of their, their history and collection as they can. Because in some ways, you don't know what's going to be historically significant uh, 20 and 25 years ago. You make that sound so easy, but I mean, we're getting to some philosophical territory here, right? How do you decide what is essential? One of the ways in which I think about my job is I have to think about what it is that I wanted. Mm -hmm. and, and the way in which I've organized the gallery is that it focuses on the sports that have had the biggest impact hmm. in African-American history and culture, boxing, the Olympics, baseball, football, basketball, golf and tennis. But I've also got to think about the person that will occupy my mm -hmm. position in 50 years and 75 years and begin to sort of try to anticipate the stories they might want to tell. And so... That, that, that's a difficult challenge because I've got to think in the moment, but I've also got to consider the future as well. I, I wonder if we could talk just a little bit about, I don't know if shelves is the right word, vaults. Uh, uh, where do these things go? How are they stored in catalog? We're talking about Air Jordans and ticket stubs and boxing gloves. And what is the storage for these, these items? How do, you, how do you find them? I think, you, you know, the storage that we have, we have an off-site storage facility where it's temperature control, climate control, okay. um, catalogs. So we have to be able to know where everything is. And so mm -hmm. um, a major part of our job is preservation. And so it's something that we try to make sure is at the forefront of everything that we do, which is one of the reasons why every year the museum has about 3,000 objects on display at any one time. And every year we're probably rotating out 310% of those objects to make sure that they're preserved. So, so when we think about books in an offsite storage, right? We, we could say, well, books vary really widely in size, but they don't, re I mean, compared to the sort of objects you're, you're dealing with, the artifacts you're dealing with, I mean, how do you know where to put, I mean, you know, a ticket stub is sitting next to, 
I don't know. Do you, do you have like one of the hoops that Shaq smashed? One of the backboards that Shaq smashed? I could see that kind of thing being in a collection. Those are very different sized shaped objects. Do they sit next to each other in a storage facility? Usually not because the tickets will often be, be sealed and into something that's equivalent to a, a sandwich bag, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a, and, and then the challenge is you have to be able to find them. So often, let's say we have a collection related to Shaquille O'Neal. So all of the objects are stored and preserved individually, but also held in a, in a same space. So you could, we don't have uh, one of those rims or backboards, but you frequently could find um, very diverse objects in, in uh, generally the same place. What do you think is the largest object that you, you keep back there? The, the two largest objects in the entire museum are in our collect, collection are a segregated rail car from the 1920s wow. and then a guard tower from Angola prison, which is about 40 feet high. And Angola prison guard tower is really important because Angola started as a plantation during the slavery period and then transformed into a prison, which sort of speaks about how how slavery continued mm -hmm. to exist in many ways after mm -hmm. it was abolished with the 13th Amendment. Um, and what we had to do is, so the museum is, is five stories mm -hmm. below ground. And in Washington, D.C., you can only build buildings so high, so you often have to build down. It's five stories below ground, and we built out the walls. And then we had to take those two items and place those into the museum and then we had to build the museum around mm -hmm. those objects. Oh, wow. That's powerful to hear those objects were part of the museum's design from its inception. And it makes me think about future exhibitions. As a former college athlete, I've been looking ahead to 2022 and how it marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which opened up so many opportunities for generations of female athletes. And I'm wondering if you're working on anything to help celebrate that major milestone. Yeah, we certainly are. I think, I think that is a huge moment. Um, one of the things that, that we've learned in the last 50 years is that we all benefit from providing girls and women with more sporting opportunities. They have higher GPAs. They're more likely to graduate, less likely to use drugs, less likely to become pregnant. 80% um, of them in the C-suite in corporate America are former athletes. And we all benefit as a society from, from that. I think it was also important for me to acknowledge that women have had a different role, a different, different challenges in the sporting world. For example, one of the stories we try to emphasize in, in the basketball space is that for most of the 20th century, women played basketball under different rules than and so these rules have all these sort of social implications. At the time, and African-American women were, were among those who fought valiantly to ensure that the, the, that segregated form of the game was, was done away with. And so we wanna, we wanna tell those stories and, and, and uh, emphasize them because they're really important ways to understand our culture and uh, understand social progress. When I think about sports and history, and especially global history, I think about the Olympics. The Tokyo Games are, are nearly here. What's important 
in your opinion, about these Olympics? Like, what are the early storylines you can see right now that might one day be essential to some exhibit in the Smithsonian? For me right now, the biggest story of, of the 2021 Olympics is the absence of Shakari Richardson and, and what that suspension means, particularly as we as a country, we as a world, are, are grappling with the war on drugs. So I think her absence really forces us to, to, to think about how we think about marijuana in this, this current moment. And I was reading this article where they were talking about doping and why and why drugs can be outlawed. One is that it's performance enhancing, one was also that it violates the spirit of sport. And I just couldn't get a sense of what it is that that means um, in terms of why that, what does it mean to violate the spirit of sport? Um, and is it beholding to our, our older notions of amateurism? So I think that's, that's sort of interesting. Um, I also think think that the Olympics are, are interesting to think about how it, where do we put the Olympics in terms of this history of amateurism and how it shifts vis-a-vis um, what we're seeing taking place with the NCAA. Um, and I think there's, there's no way that we can't see the relationship between the earlier period in Olympic history and what we're seeing right now with the NCAA. So part of it is thinking about it as, as part of a longer battle, a longer struggle as well. I had the, um, the opportunity to visit the National Museum for African-American History and Culture in 2018. Um, I was so lucky to get a ticket from a friend because it was completely impossible to uh, get a ticket on my own. She just happened to have an extra one. Um, and I was, so as a theater producer, I was so struck by the the, the intentionality of the design of the building and how the experience of visiting that museum was so different than any other cultural heritage space I've ever visited. I'm wondering in, in, your, in your work, what's the experience you want someone to have when they visit the sports gallery um, at the museum? One of the things that I learned towards the end of my time as a professor is that you just can't teach people a bunch of facts and figures. You have to reach people mm -hmm. emotionally. And you have to give them this, this sort of experience that sits with them, often in ways that last much longer than, than the new phrases or concepts or intellectual Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to balance those two things is really important. So as I was designing the sports gallery, I was actually designing it for non-sports fans. Mm -hmm. I wanted people who can't tell you the difference between a slam dunk and a touchdown <laughs> to come in and to leave and say, wow, I get it. I see why this is really significant and important. The thing about our museum is that we have 12 galleries, but one story, and you never know what's going to be the gallery that speaks to people. 
Sometimes it is the gallery that, that people expect going into the museum. Sometimes it's the gallery that, that, that they're like, oh man, I don't really want to go in this gallery and they go. <laughs> it really forces them to think about things in new ways. And so um, that's the great thing about a museum is that you never know what's going to be that moment that says, that, that, that someone says, wow, I get it. This is significant. This is important. Hmm. I think for me, when we, when we, we were um, putting together the gallery, I wanted the, the statue of Tommy Smith, John Carlos and Peter Norman to be out front mm -hmm. because I wanted people to know that this was a gallery which really tries to tell African-American history through the lens of sports rather than just a celebration of Black people running fast and jumping high. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Damian Thomas, curator of sports for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. For extra info from this discussion, links, and special features, visit the Holding History podcast page on www.holdinghistory.org. Holding History is a mentoring-driven public humanities program, and part of the work we do involves featuring student curators who are learning how to use new media to talk about old things. So each episode ends with the bookish word where our Holding History student curators give you the history of a weird word related to the history of books and media. This week's word doesn't seem that weird, but our student curators might change your mind about that. For today's bookish word, I'm Helen Smith. And I'm Caroline McCraw. And we'd like to invite you to stop for a moment and think about the word highlight. Today, we don't think twice about what it means to highlight parts of a book, but the simple act of marking text with color is actually quite new, despite its current prevalence. The word highlight first appeared in English print in 1658 as a noun referring to the bright areas where light hits a painting. Over 300 years later, in the early 1960s, Japanese inventor Yuko Horie created a felt-tipped pen that used water-based ink. Carter's Inc. of Massachusetts made a similar pen in 1963 that was first available in yellow and pink. Carter's Inc. named this pen the highlighter. Now we have highlighters, three-sided tri-lighters, combo highlighter ballpoint pens, even special Bible paper-friendly highlighters. Today, Two Stabilo Boss highlighters are sold every second. Two highlighters, four highlighters. There they go. The highlight has transcended into digital spaces. E-readers, word processors, browsers, and all sorts of digital text now have a highlighting function. Apps such as Hypothesis let readers create groups that share highlights with one another, making highlighting a social, interactive activity that goes beyond the page. Mitch Hedberg has a joke about highlighting his hair because he thinks some hairs are more important than others. There's something about this joke that encompasses the history and present of highlighting. How we have taken the natural rise and fall of light across a surface and stuffed it into a pin that marks our own value judgments. We are the light, celestial readers, marking meaning in the texts of the world with our squeaky, Neon Divinity.
That's the end of this chapter. I'm Sarah Marty. And I'm Joshua Calhoun. Our associate producer is the estimable Tom Van Camp, and our theme music is by Luke Levitt. The Bookish Word was conceived, created, and recorded by Caroline McCraw and Helen Smith. Support for this podcast was provided by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Baldwin Seed Grant and friends of the UW-Madison Libraries. Learn more about Holding History at holdinghistory.org. Thank you.